Hello, and welcome to This Speech Life, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a pediatric SLP with 10 years experience in the school setting. Each week, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of that episode topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. Welcome to today's podcast, the one about ethics in the public school system. I am Caitlin Lopez, your host for This Speech Life, a podcast geared towards school-based SLPs, and we are so excited to have Dr. Power Defer with us here today to talk about all things ethics. Before we begin, I am going to report the financial and non-financial disclosures. Financial disclosures for me, Caitlin Lopez, I receive compensation for this podcast episode, and there are no relevant non-financial disclosures to report. Dr. Lissa Powderfer receives an honorarium for the podcast episode, and she has no relevant non-financial disclosures to report. All right. I am excited to introduce to all of you Dr. Lissa Powerdefer, PhD, CCC, SLP, BCSCL, ASHA F. She's a professor at communication disorders and interim dean of the College of Education, Health, and Human Services at Longwood University in Virginia. She previously served as a special education and student services director at the Virginia Department of Education. She is a regular volunteer for the professions and has served on the ASHA Board of Ethics and as the ASHA VP for Standards and Ethics in Speech-Language Pathology. She teaches, presents, and publishes on the topic of ethics in our field, particularly in school settings. And I am just so excited to be spending some time with you today. This is a topic that we don't often sit with because it can feel uncomfortable or sticky. So I appreciate you spending some time with us today. Why don't we just jump in? What are three things that school-based clinicians need to know about ethics? First of all, thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you, Caitlin. I'm looking forward to spending the next hour or so with you. And welcome to all the school-based clinicians who are out there that having spent a lot of time talking with school-based clinicians about their ethical issues, we could probably spend the afternoon doing this, but we'll kind of focus on the big picture issues. So three things we need to know about ethical practice in the school system. First of all, we are ASHA members, and as ASHA members or certificate holders, we adhere to the ASHA Code of Ethics. The ASHA Code of Ethics is rich with resources. If you pull up the ASHA Code of Ethics, and all you have to do is to go to ASHA's website and in the search bar, put ethics, and you will pop up with a huge amount of resources. First one to focus on is the Code of Ethics. The whole focus of our code of ethics is to ensure the welfare of the consumer and protect the reputation and integrity of the professions. Let's unpack that. Ensure the welfare of the consumer. That's the first thing that we are focusing on with our ethical behavior. It is ensuring that we are providing the best services so that our consumer, the students receiving special ed services, that they are getting the best possible services and we are protecting their welfare. The code is designed to be a guide for professionals for your day-to-day decision-making. So as you face those ethical challenges in the schools, one of the first places I encourage all clinicians, especially school-based clinicians, to go is to review the code of ethics. Our colleagues in education don't have a code of ethics that they have to adhere to for their license. It's not that they're unethical, but the ethical codes come from the healthcare professions. So you're going to find that your OTs, your PTs, your nurses are familiar with the code of ethics. It's a little bit different for your special ed administrators and your principals. And so you may need to do a little bit of conversation with them about the code of ethics and why it is integral to your keeping your license and being able to work there. As you read through the four principles and the, oh, I guess it's about 60 rules, you will find that there are examples there that can assist you in your decision making for every possible scenario that you might have as you are facing school-based issues. So the second thing that I would recommend to you as you are thinking about ethical practice is to unpack the dilemma. 
and pardon me, I've got allergies here in Virginia, so I apologize for coughing occasionally or having to stop to take a drink. If you find that you have a headache, a stomach ache, that you are swirling around an event in your mind as you drive to work, as you leave work, as you're going to bed, you're probably facing an ethical dilemma. Folks that work in ethics, regardless of the field, recommend a decision-making process for solving that dilemma. The decision-making process begins with make sure you understand the situation. As we all know, we tend to listen to the first person we talk to. We tend to take that to the bank. And so if the first person we talk to might be Caitlin, and you have a great relationship here with Caitlin, Caitlin is honorable, she has integrity, and she shares information with you, we're likely to assume that Caitlin has given us all the information. But despite Caitlin's best efforts to give us all the information, she might not know all the information. So the key is to make sure we know everything. What were the antecedent events that precipitated this ethical challenge? What happened in advance? Who was involved in the situation? What might have happened which precipitated and caused the response to come that way? So understanding the situation first is the first big issue. The second thing we need to do is to figure out, is this a legal issue or an ethical issue or maybe a moral issue? Legal issue, does it violate the special education requirements? For example, is the team making the decisions or is a single person on the team making the decision about eligibility or filling out the IEP? That's a legal issue, that you're not following the requirements of IDEA if a single person makes the decision. Similarly, if the IEP is not updated on an annual basis, that's violating the regulations regarding special education. So that's a legal issue. Is it also an ethical issue? Probably so. That the whole point of having a team make a decision about a child with a disability is to get multiple perspectives. Way back 50 years ago, special education identified that we need to engage in interprofessional practice. That's become a buzzword in the healthcare industry for the last 20 years, but we knew this 50 years ago in special education. So we get a better picture of the child with a disability when the whole team is involved in making the decision. So that also can be an ethical issue that we are not really attending to the welfare of the student because we haven't fully attended to all of the specific needs of that student. Is it a moral issue? Potentially. You may have a moral code which says nobody makes a decision alone. We need to make the decision collaboratively. So it can be both, all three, a legal issue, an ethical issue, and a moral issue. So the first step in dealing with an ethical decision, ethical dilemma, is gather all the information. Make sure you know the whole story. The second part of it is identify if it's a legal issue, an ethical issue, and or a moral issue. The third step is to refer to resources to figure out how do we approach this. So I'm going to go back to that situation where an individual made a decision for eligibility and the IEP without involving the team. So some of the resources that we might look at would be pull up the local policies and procedures for special education. Take a look at the state requirements for special education regarding eligibility determination and IEP development. Talk to people. For a brand new clinician who's in the schools for the first time, this may be foreign. You know, that your clinical placement when you're in school, you are there working with a school-based SLP and that SLP was responsible for meeting all the requirements and the timelines. And so you might not be fully familiar with the requirements. So who might you talk to in the district? Well, hopefully you've got a speech language pathologist who's a mentor. Talk to that person. Talk to the special ed designee in your building. It's usually the assistant principal. Sometimes it's a lead special ed teacher who's been around for a long time and understands the special ed process. Talk to the special ed administrator for the district. Here in Virginia, a district like Fairfax County outside the D.C. metro area has got over 200 SLPs. They've got a cadre of a lead SLP and then some four others that assist in managing the speech language pathology program. In rural Virginia, 
it's often a one SLP district when you have only a few hundred students. And so you really need to kind of look at the district you're in and find out who do you talk to. If it's a one SLP district, you're going to be talking directly to the special ed administrator. If you're in Fairfax County or some of the other big districts, you're probably going to your lead SLP for guidance. Who else might you go to? Well, as a new SLP, you're probably not that long from being in school. So there are folks back at the university you could talk to. The person that gave you some guidance about education programs that did that overview of IEPs and special ed in one of your classes would be a good resource. And then read it yourself. One of the best resources that we have available to us is the ASHA website. There are rich resources about special education and there are rich resources there about ethics. So that's another source that you would go to. The last thing I recommend in terms of reviewing resources is to talk to people that are really good at asking you questions and not necessarily good at telling you what you need to do. That you want to talk to somebody that will help you think through the problem and make sure that you know everything you need to know before you start thinking about how to solve the situation. For example, if the person who sets up these meetings and forgets to include everybody and makes the decisions himself or herself has been there for 12 years and seems to be in a powerful position in the building, you're going to need somebody that gives you some guidance on how do you handle the touchiness of that situation. If it is somebody who's brand new, just been transferred to being responsible for special education, it may be the person just doesn't understand the rules of special education. So after you feel like you fully understand the situation, you've identified if it's ethical, legal, or moral, you've learned all you can about special education policies, procedures, then you think, what do I do? And you look through a variety of approaches you might have to solve the problem. A lot of people say, there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to live with it. Well, that's a decision. Deciding just to live with it and let things continue as they are is a decision. But in reality, what we need to do is think of two or three different approaches to solving it. Then give yourself an afternoon, a good night's sleep, and look at those options and figure out which one can I really implement? Which one is in my control to do something? Which one is most likely to solve the situation? We don't want to just get back at somebody that we don't agree with. We want to solve the situation so the situation doesn't continue. Then at that point, choose your option. What are the type of options that we need to choose? My recommendation is to look for options that involve retraining people. In my experience, the majority of ethical issues in special ed stem from people's lack of full understanding about the special ed process and how it's being implemented in that particular district. And the special ed administrator wants to make sure that the district complies. They don't want to be in a situation where they're in violation. They don't want a complaint filed with the State Department of Education. They don't want a due process hearing. And so sometimes going to the administrator and saying that you noticed that the IEP meetings didn't have all the people in them they should, that the lead special ed person in this building was writing the IEP solo and wasn't involving other people. I've heard examples of the special ed case manager writes the SLP goals and then hands the IEP to the speech language pathologist. That is not ethical because we aren't involved in making the decision. It is also not legal. And so if a complaint was filed against the school district for that, the school district would be found liable. So the special ed administrator generally wants to make sure they comply. And so talking to the special ed administrator about what you've observed, and then the special administrator frequently can do a training session. You made so many great points. And I have to admit, as I think about ethics, it kind of gives me this uneasy feeling of, Oh man, this is scary. This is a scary topic. Uh-huh. You know, I think a lot yeah. of us SLPs, especially newer SLPs, are thinking, you know, we want to do the right thing. We are in this field because we want to help our students. We care about their welfare. And right. you brought up a lot of points that I've seen personally in my 10 years in schools and IEPs where you think, oh, it's okay. Oh, and you know, I've made the decision to live with it. But when you think of it through the lens of this student's welfare, it's really helpful to realize, no, this is not an okay thing to live with. 
Yeah, I I really love the way that you frame that. And the other way that you framed it too, the idea of if you're, you know, driving home from work and you have that pit in your stomach or you're going into work and you have that feeling of that pit in your stomach or you're having trouble falling asleep at night, you know, just thinking about situations or, you know, over and over. Yes. And that that could be an ethical dilemma. So I really like the way that you framed what is an ethical dilemma for us to think about, but more importantly, all of the different things that we need to think about when it comes to the ethical dilemma and how we're going to solve it. You also brought up another point that I had never thought of before. We know that we're supposed to follow a code of ethics, but a lot of our colleagues don't have that same code of ethics. And so, you know, as especially going through grad school, you know, it's kind of drilled in our heads. This is how you do things. This is the right way to do things. And then we show up and it also reframed it in a way that helped me see they're not unprofessional. It's just a completely different lens that they're working through. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That your OTPT colleagues, your school psychologists, your nurses, they are all going to have a code of ethics because they come from the health professions. More and more often, you're seeing employers that have ethical standards that you have to adhere to, but they don't have the same impact. It is sometimes helpful to remind your special ed administrator or your principal that if a complaint is filed against you for not adhering to the code of ethics and it's founded, you have the potential of losing your certification, which also has the potential of meaning you lose your license, which means you have the potential of no longer being able to work. Hopefully it will never get to that point, but sometimes that's helpful to help people realize this code of ethics is really critical. Thankfully, in all my years talking to folks about ethical dilemmas, the number of people that they've worked with who just disregard ethical standards is exceptionally small, but I acknowledge some of them are out there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's that way in any field, any career, for sure. The other thing that I really like how you are framing this conversation is sometimes we can get very emotional about some of these things. Like I mentioned, you know, it's, it's not that our colleagues are unprofessional or don't care. It's just they're looking at things from a completely different lens. And I like the, like you said, a lot of times there are these ethical dilemmas because of lack of training or lack of understanding. Yes. And I think that that's huge because it really helps those of us that are struggling with the ethical dilemma of they are not bad people. They are not out to get the student or they don't care. It's simply that idea of they don't understand what they need to do and what is, what is, you know, the ed code within the local context within the state context within the federal context so I really like yeah I completely agree those special ed case managers who do the IEP without bringing the SLP most of the time they think they're helping you out because they know that you're busy and so I've heard surprise when the SLPs have said to them no I need to be there oh I was saving you a meeting you know so that training and that explanation is just a really critical part of this My presumption is that most of the time when we have difficult situations in schools, it's because people just don't know what they should know to solve the situation rather than they are purposely doing the wrong thing. Of course, I acknowledge that there is that subgroup that is more purposeful, but by and large, I think it's because people are very busy. They don't have time to check out what we're supposed to do. They try to cut corners to save time. And certainly in this COVID time, Everything going on in the schools seems to be taking longer and is more stressful. So I can appreciate why people are trying to cut corners. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And it really, and then the way that you described how we unpack the dilemma and how we work through it is really helpful and really doesn't make it seem like this huge problem, you know, it, yes, it's still a problem, but it's that idea of following your framework of making sure you've got the whole story, making sure you fully understand. And then I really like also the idea of working with somebody who can ask you reflection questions as opposed to what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's 
A lot of the folks we hang out with really like to give us the answers and, and they're fine. You know, that's the person I want to talk to if I'm trying to figure out how to fix my dishwasher. But that's not the person I want to talk to when I'm trying to figure out how do I solve this difficult situation at work. I want someone who will help me come to the decision on my own. Absolutely. And, you know, with these ethical sticky situations, we know our colleagues better than somebody who's outside of the situation. Yeah. We know our students better than somebody outside of the situation. And we might understand those interpersonal relationships a little Mm -hmm. bit more. So I I thought that that was such a valuable point. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Well, I think maybe the third thing to talk about really ties back to that ethical and legal challenge. One of the most common problems that I hear about is SLPs feeling like the eligibility team or the IEP team is taking away their authority as an SLP. And that's when we have this conflict between the law and us as speech-language pathologists. As a speech-language pathologist, we can absolutely diagnose a speech and language impairment. But having a speech and language impairment does not make the child eligible for special education. There is that additional step which has to happen of does that have an adverse effect on the child's education? That component of that is decided by the entire team. And we SLPs come from a clinical perspective, especially SLPs who have come from healthcare or private practice or rehab, that they are used to being the sole person making the decision about whether this child should be getting services, this adolescent or adult gets services. But even in that situation, we have to adhere to reimbursement rules. And so Medicare, Medicaid, Anthem all have some restrictions on whether they will pay for therapy. Special ed is a little bit the same. The decision that the child has an impairment and that impairment causes an adverse educational impact, therefore they need services, is related to the receipt of special ed funding. And so it's analogous to Anthem saying that we're not going to pay for services for a child who has a developmental articulation disorder because it doesn't meet Anthem's rule in the same way If there is no educational impact of the speech and language impairment, it doesn't meet the special ed rule. So that creates a dilemma for a lot of SLPs. And I think by going back and reviewing the intention idea and the decision-making process for every child and idea, it becomes easier for us. Now, are there other options to get that child services? Certainly. Child might qualify under a 504 plan. The child might qualify under response to innervation or multi-tiered systems of support or whatever the terminology is where you happen to work. So it doesn't mean that the child might not get services. So that's where we go in that brainstorming, that we as SLPs feel real strongly that that child might need continued services. We get the fact that this stuttering in a fourth grader is not having any impact academically. The child speaks up in class, does oral presentations, there's no impact on reading or math. And so we get why the whole team didn't find the child eligible, but we know that this particular young person is going to need support for stuttering. So then we start going down the pathway. Would this child qualify under 504? Could we qualify under multi-tiered system of support or RTI? Um, So there are other ways to try to address the children's needs. That's where that brainstorming portion of this is so important. And then it's also helpful to take time to chat with the team. I've been in the field a little longer than you have, Caitlin. And when I started, I was sure that people would finally understand we do more than R's and S's. It's decades later and people still think we just do R's and S's. So shame on us as a profession that we haven't done a good enough job explaining to folks everything that we do related to literacy, related to engagement, social engagement in the classroom, participation in the oral activities in the classroom. Um, We really need to continue to share the word so that one of the brainstormings that might happen is to figure out how can I help the other members of the eligibility and IEP team get a better understanding of what I do. That might be spending more time in the classroom, doing some more work in the classroom. We tend to call that push-in. A special educator made the comment that push-in seems kind of pushy. And I thought, well, it certainly is. It's the opposite of pull out, but pushing isn't necessarily a positive term for the person whose class we're going into. So, but anyway, if we go into the classroom, do more collaborative work, 
I hear lots of wonderful stories about how that really helps people realize what we do and be more collaborative during the IEP meeting. So that's one of those brainstorming ideas we might have for a longer term impact in how to solve some of these problems. Absolutely. I think swallowing is one of the big issues now where our school teams don't understand that swallowing has an educational impact and it's part of our scope of practice. You know, they may not even think of swallowing for the child, but, you know, the data is pretty clear that we have children in school that have feeding and swallowing issues. And there have been some pretty unfortunate court cases where schools have been liable for children choking and, in fact, passing away due to improper feeding and swallowing at school. So that's another key area of providing some education to the other members of the team. Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from speechtherapypd.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. I know on the East Coast, swallowing is practiced in the school system, but on the West Coast, we don't have swallowing on our caseloads. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, but I do remember my first year sitting at lunchtime and there was a student that was demonstrating difficulty. And I said, oh, we need to do a swallow eval. You know, I need to. And they said, oh, no, we don't do that here. And, you know, I'm a brand new CF. So I said, oh, okay. Yeah, you know, right. oh, that's that's a medical that, you know, that's under the medical umbrella. That's not under our school umbrella. But like you just brought up the the examples of, well, the school could be held liable. So that is a I'm definitely seeing how that is definitely becoming much more of a topic that we're seeing in the school system. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I'm grateful for those that are are doing the work, you know, Michelle Dawson and Aaron Forward right. and Kristen West are, are putting on some really great things for school-based clinicians. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. yeah. Another name I'd throw in that list is Emily Homer, that she really started coming up with a process of how you create your feeding and swallowing teams from the work that she did in Louisiana. So there's some good folks out there giving guidance. Yeah. So those are definitely resources for those of you looking for, for swallowing, you know, help um, when it comes to the schools. You know, you brought up some really great points again about getting creative with services and talking about how our agency as SLPs is kind of taken away. I've noticed, and I I don't know, I noticed in California, especially the districts that I've been a part of, we've had the opposite where we want to exit kids and we're not being Uh allowed to exit kids. And so, you know, I've had to get creative on that end of things of really showing how, okay, this is how we are going to, to support the student who's no longer on the IEP or we have kids that have gone through the initial evaluation process and they don't qualify, especially in Southern California. A lot of my students are not qualifying because it's not a true language disorder. It's a second language difference. And so trying to show that to parents, trying to show that, which is hard because we have parents that are Spanish speaking. So they come in and their child is not speaking Spanish or really English, you know, because they're in the English setting all day long. So they're losing some of their Spanish skills when they come home. And so, you know, families are seeing, well, my kid isn't talking and our data is showing, well, they're able to learn, you know, through dynamic assessment, through some of our bilingual assessments, which are still biased, but we're able to see that these kids are not having disorders. It's just a difference. And so I've definitely learned that we have to be creative in those 504s or in the collaboration pieces with teachers too. Yep. Absolutely. You're right about that, Caitlin. The challenge of exiting children, Perry Flynn, who's the speech and language consultant in North Carolina, very well says that we need to start talking about dismissal from the day we find the child first eligible. So get that in the mind of everybody on the IEP team and the parent. And through all of the meetings, talk about how we are integrating what we are doing as a speech and language pathologist in the classroom, how we are supporting the teacher. As you indicated, recognize the support services that can be put into the IEP. But depending upon your state, 
you may not be able to exit the child without parental permission. In Virginia, for example, the parents have to give permission. And so that just feels like this huge ethical dilemma that we shouldn't be providing services according to our code of ethics if there isn't the potential for benefit if the evaluation results don't suggest continued improvement. But then on the same time, the law gives the parents the right to overrule us. And so our brainstorming there is, all right, how do I write the IEP so I am supporting the parents and the other teachers so that I am no longer feel like I'm violating the code of ethics by providing the services myself? And then I think going back to Perry's point, we need to talk about that regularly. And the more time we spend interacting with our colleagues in special ed and general ed, the easier it is to make that transition of services from us to the other providers. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that that's a great point as far as talking about it from day one, letting parents know that our main job is to work ourselves out of a job. Exactly. And like you said, you know, hearing that language over and over again is making sure everyone on the team is on the same page and it's not just all of a sudden we've decided our caseloads are too high and it's time to bump Johnny off. So, right. And then I know that there are situations out there where the SLPs feel like the division is giving into the parents. And that's a good time to realize what are the other factors that are going on here, creating this ethical dilemma. And I think it's easy for school-based SLPs to be unaware of the cost of a due process hearing. And the cost is emotional on the fact part of everybody who has to go testify. It is emotional in terms of the impaired relationships with the family. It is emotional because resources are being spent on this that could be spent well otherwise. It is not uncommon for the school's cost in a due process hearing to reach six figures. And so you is that just stunning? I mean, that is just stunning. If the school district loses, they pay their own attorney's fees and then have to pay the parent's attorney's fees. So if you've gone to a due process hearing, the parent probably has a pretty good attorney. They're probably not doing it on their own. And so sometimes administrators make decisions that they may not really want to make, but they look at the cost in terms of personnel in terms of emotions, relationships with the family, and financial, and think this is just not a good use of resources. And the lesser of two evils, so to speak, is to just move on with the parent and try to work through it and see if we can have the parent come around to seeing things our way the next time we revise the IEP. Thank you. That is such a great example of taking in all of the information. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Such a great example of that, you know, of... I have my one vision of what I think is happening and the administrator has theirs. The parent has theirs. So thank you for that example. Yeah, that that is so true. Yeah. I'm really appreciating this conversation so much because ethics is so rich and not just a, you know, right and wrong. Right. Right. Shades of gray. Absolutely. As we are moving through our ethical decisions and dilemmas, what resources do you have for us? You have mentioned one several times throughout your conversation, but what are some things that we can do as we are moving through? Well, when you're dealing with special education, I urge clinicians to become very familiar with the special education webpage on your State Department of Education main page, that they are going to have the regulations for your state. They're going to have guidance regarding eligibility. They're going to have guidance regarding how you address disproportionality, which is the over-identification of persons with certain racial, in certain racial ethnic categories for special education. They may have forms for how you do the classroom observations. They may have information about the accommodations related to assessments that you need to reflect on your IEP. So, go to that particular site and get the information there. Many states have a speech and language specialist at the State Department of Education. That was my first role when I went to the Virginia Department of Education. Not all states do, but many do. So look on that website and see if there is a speech and language consultant. Call that person up. These are public servants and they are there to assist you. If your state does Medicaid billing and you're feeling betwixt and between over some of the Medicaid requirements, There is going to be somebody responsible for Medicaid billing, either at the state Medicaid office or at the State Department of Education or both. So contact those people. 
Look at the, make sure you're reading the guidelines for Medicaid billing yourself. If you've got a, a somebody in your billing office, don't just rely on what they know. Read it yourself. I'm a huge believer in going to the original source yourself. Don't just rely on somebody else. That's kind of like the first comment that you might believe your billing specialist is really knowledgeable and knows everything. Well, there may have been some updates since that person last did the billing, or maybe they were trained by somebody who was trained when Medicaid billing first came out and they haven't updated their knowledge. I just had another bug show up. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Yeah. All right. You're going outside or into the trash can. Okay. (laughs) Sorry about that, folks. It's springtime in Virginia and (laughs) I was outside right before this call. All right. So I talked about special ed and Medicaid as state resources. The other thing that I highly recommend for a resource is the ASHA ethics webpage. I mentioned that for going to read the code of ethics, but oh my goodness, there is so much more there. One section, which I hope you never have to use, is to how to file an ethics complaint. So if you are in that situation and you feel like you can't resolve the situation in any way other than filing a complaint with ASHA, Board of Ethics, then all the procedures are there. But that's not the point of what I really want you to look at. They have about 20 or 25 issues and ethics statements. These were written by members of the Board of Ethics, and they are written to address common ethical issues that face speech-language pathologists and audiologists. And so these are developed based on what they've seen in complaints that have come to the board or phone calls that come to the ASHA ethics staff. Last time I talked to folks at the ASHA ethics office, they were getting about 3,000 inquiries a year about ethical dilemmas. So yeah, that's a ton. You know, they have attorneys on staff that are there to kind of walk through things with you. And so they would look for patterns there and offer issues and ethics statements. Less related to the schools, but a number of years ago, our colleagues in skilled nursing facilities were facing a lot of ethical dilemmas in terms of feeling like they were being ordered to provide services to persons who should not be getting services, but they were being ordered to do so by people higher up in the administration in order to bring in revenue. Well, they had a number of resources on that topic and a, a, a live chat that is available. So those are examples of what is available on the ASHA ethics webpage. And I highly recommend that people dive into that when you've got that pit in your stomach, not able to sleep, kind of running through the situation. Look and see, has somebody done this before? Um, is there, can I learn something from these resources? Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And they might also help our own brainstorming too, even if the situation Uh, is not 100% matching, I'm sure it will help us kind of see how somebody handled something similarly and get our brains thinking on the right track. Absolutely. And then other things that I know everybody looks at, you're going to look for continuing education on ethics that is in the topic that you need with the requirement for our annual certification that we have to verify that we've had that ethics training. People are going to look for ethics training. And so take a look at one where the topic relates to some of the issues you're having and that it kind of gets you thinking about different approaches. Um, There are more articles that we're finding that are being published for continuing education credits on ethics. And so read those, you know, and you don't need to limit yourself to that one ethics hour that you can certainly pursue more than that as you're facing a challenging situation. And then call a friend, that person that will will help you think through that. Also think about calling former faculty, former supervisors. Maybe your original CF mentor might be a good candidate. So there are a lot of good folks out there that can help you think through it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And I love that you said don't rely on just one person. I think that that's how we end up getting in some of these sticky situations. I know in my previous district, and of course, you know, we... The whole of 2020, 2021, and ongoing has been a case study. But our particular special ed department was not the greatest at getting information out to all of the departments. So, Mm -hmm. you know, understanding of the psych departmental meeting might be a little different than the understanding of the speech department or the SDC teachers or the RFPs, you know. So, 
So there was some sticky situations where I remember talking about upcoming IEPs on Zoom and the RSP teacher said, oh, well, this is what the principal said. And I was thinking, well, we just had a meeting this morning with the special ed director and this is what she told us, you know. And so that idea of training and relying on multiple voices and then also utilizing documents as and being reading the documents ourselves to make sure that we know, which is also great, too, because if somebody comes to us with a question, we can give them and show them in the document because we've read it ourselves. We know where it is. Right. Absolutely. And certainly you what a good description of COVID. It was just a live case study that everybody in the world was going through at the same time. And I know where I work, our requirements evolved week to week, sometimes day to day. And so people may have the best intentions of getting the word out in a hurry. But if somebody read their email at 6 a.m. and somebody else doesn't read it till 2 p.m. or somebody doesn't send it out at 6 a.m. or another sends it out at 2 p.m., you're going to have that kind of conflicting information. I think that COVID taught us we should be giving grace to people. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It just felt like a very strange game of telephone. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So and, and people react differently due to their stress. Absolutely. Some people just get, you know, their back up over being questioned, whereas other people are explorers and try to find out everything. And so a lot of meetings were highly stressful. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It's just been a ginormous case study in so many different areas. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a great point as far as finding grace for others, which is something that I hope we take with us, you know, as we move forward. Yes, I do too. As we move forward into working through these decisions. And also, I think something that I really greatly learned was interprofessional practice. Yes. You know, it made it a little bit easier to collaborate with teachers and to do to be pushy in their Zoom sessions. I say pushy, you know, for pushing. But I like I like yeah. to call it co-teaching, you know, where I'm modeling yeah. phonological or morphological awareness skill in front of the teacher and then talk about hopefully finding a time to talk about it after what I was focusing on or maybe beforehand so right. the teacher can see. And that can also be an example of, right. you know, exactly. providing those services in different ways. But yeah, collaboration is key. And relationships, I think, are key as we move through these ethical dilemmas. Yeah. I think that some of those ethical dilemmas that really bother us sometimes occur because we don't make that connection with that individual, that there is something about that individual that kind of plucks our last nerve, to use an expression that a a dear friend of mine uses. And because of that, it's often harder to get past the method of delivery the timing of the delivery and dive into finding out what's behind that message and giving grace is so important that it helps you just kind of pause a moment and pay a little bit more attention to more information. Make sure you're gathering all the information to make your decision. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. That is the biggest thing I think is when we have a friendship or a relationship with someone, we're going to be much more generous in our interpretation. Yes. And we're going to realize that, you know, people are not out to get each other for the most part, for the most part, you know, and, and remember that we are all in this, especially in the school system, hopefully, you know, we're all in this for the benefit of the student. And so, you know, I love a lot of the things that you said in that, those first three, you know, the welfare of the student comes first. And so what Mm -hmm. does that look like? How, and then also using that to frame how I'm taking in information of, okay, how is this teacher thinking about the welfare of the student? Oh, well, maybe they're not, but I get it. They've had 10 IEPs this week, you know. So how do I help them become a little bit more proficient in making sure that their invitations go out on time to all stakeholders? So thank you for that. And I think another example of that is the teacher that is not implementing some of our suggestions in the classroom. It is easy for us to assume that they don't care about the child or they don't respect our recommendations. One of the best things that IDEA added was that we SLPs go observe in the classroom. And I think that is a great eye-opener for us to see what goes on in the classroom. You have got teachers pre-COVID, before we had to start dealing with sick kids and Zoom, but they would have 25 kids that are performing every 
on the full continuum from reading and math two grade levels above to reading and math two grade levels below and four or five kids with disabilities and a child with attention deficit disorder and a child who's got some trauma going on, oh, it becomes easier to see that what I thought was just two or three minutes in the day, there aren't two or three minutes in the day for all 25 kids and still get done what needs to be done. And so that gathering more information by going into the classroom helps us to be better collaborators with the teachers because we understand their role as much as we want them to understand our role. Are you looking to move up on the pay scale? You can through speechtherapypd.com in collaboration with University of the Pacific. Start earning graduate level credits today. Courses are evidence-based and practical. Win-win. Check out speechtherapypd.com for more information on earning graduate level credits. I think that's such a great point that you brought up of all the things that are on teachers' plates, let alone, you know, you know, the the testing requirements and if they have kids that are in the RTI process and all the data collection that they have to do, plus worrying about, you know, Johnny's situation at home and is he going to have food tonight? And, you know, there's a there's a lot that is on teachers plates. And I, it's always a good reminder to me to see that and to remember, you know, we would never do that to ourselves. We would never put a kindergartner a sixth grader and a, you know, third grader who's just working on articulation while the others have some different, you know, language things going on. We would never do that to ourselves in a group, but teachers have to live with that every day. They do. That's a good way of describing them. Yeah. Thank you. So what is one actionable strategy that we can start using tomorrow? I mean, you've given us so many, Yeah, yeah. so many great ones, but what is one thing that we can start doing tomorrow? I would say, to make the choice to do something if you see something that's unethical. It is very easy just to let it go and to do nothing. We are obliged by our code of ethics if we observe unethical behavior to do something. We are not obliged to always report it to the Board of Ethics or Licensure Board, but we can't just let it go. And so take the time to try to figure out, am I just seeing one side of the story? Do I have a bias? We all have biases. We just have to recognize that. It's part of the human condition. Understand from my psychology colleagues that there are about 100 different types of biases that we're all walking around with all the time. You know, so the recency one, the last person who told you that, you know, any sort of implicit biases you may have about different people, they're all going to color how we view something. So do your best to set your biases aside and understand the situation and then figure out what can I do? to fix it. What can I do to take this, my colleague who never gets her IEPs done on time, what can I do to assist her in meeting the requirements? You know, we don't need to have her fired. She's a great clinician. Her paperwork is terrible. So what is something that I can do to assist with that and take the stress off of the whole SLP program because of somebody's behind with that? You also have more egregious situations. Let's say you have SLP assistants in your district and the supervisee SLP isn't doing her, his or her job. They are not supervising at the level that is required. It'd be easy just to say, oh, it's in another school. I'm not going to do anything. But don't make that choice. Make the choice to say, I care about the kids. I care about the students receiving speech and language services. I care about the profession. I believe strongly in this profession and I want people to believe that we are highly qualified professionals. So make the choice to do something and find the solution that will fix the situation rather than punish the person that is doing something wrong. I'm not to say that there aren't times we need to punish. You know, the SLP that committed $6 million of Medicare fraud, that's punishment. So there are times when punishment is appropriate. But I think that's not the ethical dilemmas that are keeping us awake at night. Those are the ethical dilemmas that most of us deal with on a daily basis. There are ways to try to fix it. Now, I say that knowing sometimes it's not a fix isn't available. One of the reasons for that is we can't get all the information. A good example of that might be you are suspicious that a colleague's Medicaid billing is an error but you don't have access to it and you can't have access to it for confidentiality reasons. 
You're not the SLP supervisor, so you don't have access to that. So you may just be left with this feeling of, I feel like something's not going right, but I don't have access to it. Well, even in that, there might be something you could do. You might offer a question to somebody who does have access, who can pursue it. So, but I do recognize that there are some times when we just can't fix it and we have to move forward because we don't have enough information to really unpack the nature of the problem and be able to look for reasonable solutions. That's a very long one strategy. I love it though. I, you know, I really love the idea and you said it at the very beginning too, even if you let it go, that's making a decision to do nothing. And so making a decision to do something, you know, is important. I'm thinking in my recent years as an SLP and seeing some of these things where IEPs are not getting done ahead of time or, and not in the predetermination way, but just There's not progress reports being written. There's not, you know, there's not updated present levels, which is not a predetermination thing. It's just simply somebody not getting their paperwork done in time. Exactly. Exactly. And so how in the past I've just thought, oh, okay, here we go. This IEP is going to be kind of messy, you know, going into it. Or I, one thing that I ran up against a lot was progress reports not being done every three months they're supposed to be done you know with my sdc teachers or my rsp teachers and so that i i have to admit i would just let it go but now i am inspired to come in and find out what's going on you know or come in and inspire our special ed team to make sure that present levels are updated you know and and also i think some way that we can, this is the time of the year that I like to reflect on, okay, what went well this year? What are we going to keep going with? What didn't go well? How can we implement and create change for next year? And so you've really got my brain thinking on a lot of different things, you know, training being a huge one at the beginning of the year. I know that we always do some big IEP trainings and going through things, but seeing if there's maybe a way to make it seem fresh and new so that The information we don't know can hit us differently. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. The things that you mentioned were things that I commonly saw as errors. Present level of performance that were the same for three years in a row. Well, the child is not the same, for heaven's sakes. Progress reports that say either not done or say the child is making progress. Where is the data? Both of those are make the school district very vulnerable that the school district would lose if a complaint is filed, the school district would lose if there is a due process hearing. And we don't want that. And so working with the central administration about how to try to improve that. In the area of data, I think a lot of people just don't know how to keep data efficiently. It's overwhelming with a large caseload and showing people different techniques. And, you know, get half a dozen people who are good at that. They all do it different ways and help the people that are struggling with it to have a potpourri of approaches they could use and try to implement. Yeah, I think that that's great. And you also mentioned this in your actionable strategy too, the idea of coming at it from, I love my profession. I love my student. So I want to make sure that we're doing things well. And like you said, you know, if you're not writing data and or taking data and putting it into the progress or the present levels and the student is changing, that's not serving the student well. And, you know, something that I saw a lot was goals just continuing on. And maybe, right. you know, maybe they would just adjust the the criterion of mastery and that being it. But maybe I can come together with the team and inspire them. Okay, let's really think about why they haven't met this goal yet. You know, is there something else that we need to work on that will still target the same things, but we can rewrite the goal in a fresh way instead of just... accuracy to 85% accuracy. So, uh, so thank you. You know, I'm, I'm excited to come at my IEPs with a a level of vigor and freshness here that I think is going to serve the students and also, you know, serve the profession because we want, we want there to be good relationships, you know, as a preschool SLP working with parents. So when they come into the IEP with an elementary SLP, they're not leery. They're excited because they've had a good relationship. And, you know, all the way through the transitions up until high school, you know, they're, they know that the SLP is somebody they can trust and that has good, 
goodwill towards their child as opposed to, I don't know, this one SLP never listened to me. I don't know how I feel about you guys. Well, the topics we've been talking about most recently are actually covered in the Code of Ethics. And as we conclude our time together, principle one about the welfare of the individual we serve includes rule K, that we have to evaluate the effectiveness of our services. So if we are not doing that evaluation, then we are not meeting that ethical requirement. If we're not keeping data, that would be violating Rule Q, maintaining timely and accurate records for the people that we're serving. So ethics just weaves in. It's not just a special and legal issue. It is part of our ethical standards we must adhere to. Thank you. And I thank you for bringing that up as data is really important. Evaluating our services is really important. Self-reflecting on, you know, is what I'm doing therapeutic benefit for this student is important. I also really liked how you brought up that it can be an ethical, legal, or moral. It's sometimes it's legal, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's ethical, you know, and so I really like that distinction too of just making sure that we're understanding the differences. And especially that piece of moral, I think so often we like to think good and bad. And it's it's good to remember, well, it's not always a bad situation. It's a misunderstanding or a view through a different lens. You know, people often say that it's not whether it's right, it's whether it could be more right. Mm. You know, so we can live with it because, yeah, it's okay, but it's really not the standard, which I believe in, is meeting the welfare of the client, which is representing the profession in the way I think we need to be represented. Yeah, which is such a great way to think about it with why I've let some of these things go in the past, right? Is it is it completely wrong that, you know, present levels aren't being written until the time of the IEP with the parent? It's not completely wrong. The IEP did get finished, but it's not completely right either. So, right. It's not really doing the best service for them. Absolutely. Time. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm trying to think if I have any other situations that I can bring up or think about. You know, I really appreciated how you walk through IEPs with us. I really appreciated how you walked through even interpersonal SLP to SLP situations. Do you have any examples of working with parents and maybe an ethical dilemma there? I know we talked a little bit about dismissal and uh, keeping right. kids on. Can you think of And you alluded to it earlier with the parents that wanted their children to get services that I think it's easy to forget that parents are the experts in their children, that we are the speech and language experts, but we've seen that child a snippet of the amount of time that parents have seen the child. And so it is easy not to give parents enough attention and listen to their concerns. And so if the parent wants their child to get speech and language services and the child isn't eligible, and we tell them they're not eligible, well, you've just left that parent with nothing. And so understanding the parent's perspective and the parent's point of view is a really important part here. That's part of that moral issue, I think, of are we doing the best service for this child and family? And so what resources are we giving to the parent to help them as they are struggling? Are we spending time with them? The example you gave of the child who's learning English at school as the child is not showing any delays, but they're not talking as much in the native language. How much time are we spending with the parent and helping the parent to come to the same understanding that we have about the process of learning two languages and to allay some of their fears and to give them options for support? That giving grace to our peers is so important in terms of giving grace to parents as well. It's easy also to forget that parents are grieving, that parents don't like to have a child that needs additional support. I know that there's a subset that probably likes that, but in general, parents are grieving the fact that their child is not meeting the vision that they have of this child when they were pregnant. And so we need to recognize that that cycles through as the child goes from one phase to another, as they go from earlier intervention to preschool, preschool to kindergarten, not being a reader to being a reader, moving from elementary to middle, all of these stages become kind of scary And especially for our parents, as they've got children with more significant disabilities, as they're looking at their child exiting. Transition is there to try to help these children exit into the adult system, but that's an imperfect transition. And so helping the parents um, realize that you care about that. And, um, you know, for those young people that 
we think that we've done everything for them. They've plateaued in all of their work. The student with an intellectual disability stop and reflect, have we done enough to help that young person transition to the world of work, the world of adult life? Have we transitioned to the communication skills that they need there? We spent, you know, the past 10 years focusing on academics. Have we made that transition to the world of work in our efforts? So all of that goes back to say, create that relationship with parents, spend time with parents, with caseloads of 50 on average around the country, it's hard to do it. There is that part in the IEP process about the concerns of the parents are reflected on the IEP. That's more than asking them, what are your concerns at the IEP meeting and writing down what they say in 30 seconds. It's having a relationship where you um, know what their concerns are. You have met with them on a periodic basis so that um, they trust you and that you have their child's welfare um, at heart. Thank you. Thank you for that point of having grace for parents. It just recently reminded me of a parent that I was speaking to recently who her child is going to just celebrated her fourth birthday. And she's known this is her second child. So she's a little bit familiar with, you know, speech and language milestones and other milestones too. And she, they got the autism diagnosis when her child was three. And she actually, I think even a little bit before that, she was in early intervention. Anyway, she's been in the process. She's been in the system for a while. And they just had her fourth birthday and invited some of her classmates over for the birthday and some neighbor children over as well. And she, that week after the birthday party, the parent was expressing that she was grieving all over again because she was focused on her child's success and was so excited that this last year she's made so much success. You know, she's she's just blowing her away with what she's able to do now. But then she also saw all of the other children, especially the children from her, her special ed preschool class who were there, who were a little bit ahead of her. Granted, a lot of those students are going to be moving on to kindergarten next year. So they are older. Right. But... It just was that realization of, I'm not done grieving yet, which you brought up, you know, every single milestone that we have within our lives, parents are going to be coming at that. And it's going to be a reminder to them that things are not what they were thinking they were going to be. Good example. Yeah. And it, it, it hit me because this mom is so, so expressive and, and we have a really great relationship, which I'm so grateful for. And she's so, she is her daughter's biggest cheerleader that I wouldn't have thought that she would have gone through the grieving process all over again. Right, right. And so for you to bring that up, it reminded me of, you know, two weeks ago having this conversation and, and it just kind of floored me because this parent, she doesn't see autism as, you know, something scary like a lot of other parents, but she does see that her daughter isn't going to be living life the way that she had envisioned. So, so yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for the, the relationship piece, you know, as, as we're talking through these things, I'm realizing how important our professional relationships really are and the time that it's going to take to, to spend, to really deepen that relationship, but not because it makes our life easier. It makes our work more fun or to make work enjoyable, but really it benefits the student. Right. So thank you for that. As far as parents go, are there any other situations that come to mind that can give us examples of how to unpack things? We've talked about parents. We've talked about special education teachers. You know, as- I'll give you another example that our students at our starters often have difficulty with reading fluency tasks. And I had a very interesting experience with a colleague in special education that I've known for a very long time who I thought had a huge amount of respect for what speech and language pathologists did and a good understanding of it. And he came to me and said, there is something wrong with the speech language pathologist at this school. This child is not mastering the reading fluency that she hasn't solved the stuttering problem. And I went, Oh, and so we had this ethical situation where he is being very critical of the speech and language pathologist. The child is being, viewed as being behind in reading skills because of stuttering. And so I realized at that point that even the folks that I think know a ton about what we do don't really know as much about what we do. And so 
it reminded me that when we have students who stutter in schools, that we need to address the issue because reading fluency is a pretty common reading measurement. And we need to be talking with the reading specialists, the special ed teachers and the general ed teachers about the impact of stuttering on that. Even if the child does not found eligible for special education, which I know they're it's kind of a, a mixed bag for kids who are stutterers, whether they're found eligible or not. It's a key area for us to um, talk to the teachers about. So this ethical dilemma is my friend has got a bad impression of the SLP in that district where there's probably no basis for that, you know, limited information. So I want to try to prevent that from happening. We've got the issue of the students being rated poorly on their reading performance, which is so critical for their general ed progress. So it's an information area. That example really reminds us about how important it is to have relationships with our peers and never assume that they know as much as we think they know. You know, take the opportunity to make sure that we have filled in the gaps. Better to overstate something than to understate it. Um, Patty Prelock, who was ASHA president when I was on the board of directors, had a statement that she was dean at the university where she was. She had to tell her faculty something seven times before they remembered that. Well, that is so humbling because... That's a good example of well-educated people who are well-meaning don't always get it the first time. And so we need to remember that we need to say things over and over again in different ways without getting exasperated to make sure that the folks we're working with truly understand the message we're trying to share with them. Thank you. That is a great example of you know, yeah. an ethical situation, as well as that example of the ASHA president having to explain things so many times. So as we wrap up, what are just your main takeaways that you want us to have? I think the one thing that I would love everybody to remember as they are facing an ethical dilemma is don't jump to conclusions. Don't jump to a decision about what to do until you are 101% confident that you know everything you possibly can learn about the situation. Even if the person who told you this is somebody incredibly reliable Go out and verify, get the information yourself, because you don't want to be in a situation of drawing a conclusion without enough information, because the detriment to that, to the person you're dealing with, or your own self-confidence that you made a decision that you shouldn't have made without the information. So seek out the information. And it's easy to react. It's easy to react to something which just is appalling to you or just plucks your last nerve, or goes against your moral fiber. But check yourself from moving forward until you are sure that you know everything possible that you can learn about the situation. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for spending this time with us and helping us realize ethics doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be, you know, a totally uncomfortable situation that we have resources and we have things that we can do about it. I am really excited about this next school year and tackling some of these issues in a way that's helpful and can fix the problem rather than just demonize the problem. So thank you for that. Right, exactly. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lissa. I really appreciate you spending time with us. And for everyone else, thank thank you for spending time with us too. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.